Take your Bibles and turn, we're going to turn to one place first this morning in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 25, and then we're going to take a little bit of a, uh, maybe for you, unexpected turn in our Through the Bible study this morning. Years ago, there was a marine biologist who wrote a rather interesting article uh, about a certain type of ocean plant, I believe from the kelp family. You've met the kelp family, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, this plant grows from depths of 150 to 200 feet, sometimes more than that. And it grows all the way up to the surface of the ocean. And the tops of these plants spread out and they just get pounded by the waves day and night. They get slammed back and forth in the water. They often get beaten against the rocks without ever breaking loose. And this obviously fascinated this marine biologist way more than it fascinates me. <laughs> but after reading what he wrote, I was really struck by the, the profundity of what he said. Just listen to this. He said, the stem of this plant is less than an inch thick. Yet it grows and thrives and hold it, holds its own against the fierce smiting and pressure of the breakers. <clears throat> What's the secret of this marvelous resistance and endurance? How can this slender plant face the fury and the elements so successfully and despite storms and tempests keep itself so secure? The answer is simple, he said. It reaches down to the still depths of the ocean where it fixes its grasp to the naked rocks beneath the sand. No commotion of the waves above can shake it from its fastening. Well, I'm not sure if he realized it or not, but he provided uh, an interesting picture of what our lives should look like as followers of Christ. That even when we're tossed and we're battered by the waves of this life, by the waves of opposition, we can remain peacefully secure as long as you and I are fastened to the rock down below. Today, even though we're going to begin in Jeremiah, today we come to a man in the Old Testament who teaches us how to do exactly that. He was so securely anchored in his faith in God and his relationship with God, that he remained completely unshaken, uncompromised in a culture that was trying to do everything it could to change him. And there's an awful lot we can learn from this today. I don't know if you've noticed it, but the opposition against people like you and me doing what we're doing here this morning is slowly but surely increasing in this country more and more. And so we need to be prepared to stand in a culture that is becoming increasingly godless, not just godless, but hostile to what you and I believe and stand for. Last week, we, uh, we looked at Jeremiah, how he reached a point of exhaustion, discouragement, brokenness, and said, um, I'm done with this. I, I'm, I just can't speak uh, the Lord's name anymore. I'm exhausted. And we saw how that fire in him, the word of God, sparked once again. And he said, even though I'm tired, even though I'm beaten down, 
I cannot keep this in, this truth of God that I know, that I have inside. I can't keep it in. And so now we come this morning to Jeremiah chapter 25. And we're going to read a portion of this chapter that's, you know, it's not super fun reading, but what we've come to today now, finally, after all these many, many months of going through the Old Testament and seeing how the God's people had rebelled against him again and again, generation after generation, had turned their back on God, they had gone their own way, they had pursued false idols, and it was all fun and games, even when the prophets came to them one after the other and said, God's judgment is coming. Well, they'd wake up the next morning and God's judgment hadn't come. And the next morning, and the next, and the next, and the next month, and the next year. And so after a while, they said, well, clearly, God's word is not true. His judgment isn't going to come. So let's just continue living like we want to. Now we come to Jeremiah chapter 25. And what we see now is the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy of judgment. Now time has run out. God's judgment is coming, and everything is about to change. Let's get a little bit of the background here. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I'm going to try to make sense of all that in just a second. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. Now, in the next few verses, in 4 through 7, he expands on this, and he explains once again how they have rebelled and how they have refused to listen and hear God's warnings. Verse 8, therefore, in other words, because of your rebellion, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will summon all the families of the north, says the Lord and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, hmm, will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them, and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolation. Verse 10, moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp, and this whole land will be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, I'm certain that when Jeremiah spoke those words, the people once again rolled their eyes and said, here we go again. This old man is just not going to shut up. He's not going to let this go. But God has now set in motion the wheels of his judgment. And what we see happening, not just in Scripture, but in historical accounts, in the 
Babylonian records and other places, we see a clear unfolding now in history of God's word coming true. So this is now in 605 BC. I know these old years don't mean that much to us, but sometimes it is important to have some of them down just to get um, a time frame of when all these things kind of piece together. So in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar led the armies of Babylon down to Judah, and he began taking God's people captive. Now, to help us kind of begin to put all this in place again, I'm going to go back to some of our old maps. Let's bring up that first map and remind you that there in the north, in the purple, is Israel, whose capital is Samaria, and down below is Judah in the green, whose capital is Jerusalem. Now, those two areas make up the promised land, and God's people were never intended to, to divide like this. But now since Solomon's death, uh, the nation of Israel has split in two. Ten tribes went to the north. Two tribes went to the south. Hundreds of years have gone by, and these people have been living in division. And God has been warning, I'm going to, I'm going to send judgment. Now, what we've already seen, if you go to the next slide... Years before this, the nation of Assyria had already come down and they had invaded Israel and they had taken not all but most of the people captive and then scattered them into different cities around the place in order to to weaken them so that they could no longer be a threat. So Judah has had the, the, the warning of being able to look across the border up north and say, boy, you know, God's word came true about our brothers up there. They were attacked, they were taken away captive, and yet they continued in their waywardness. It's amazing. It's amazing how hard-headed we humans are. I am. You're probably not. It's awfully quiet in here today. Is everybody okay? So Assyria has come down. They've invaded Israel. This happened a long time back. Now, in the meantime... Babylon has gone over and invaded Assyria, and they've obliterated the city of Nineveh. All that has taken place. Now, if we go to the third slide, we see what is unfolding here in Jeremiah chapter 25. Now, the Babylonians invade Judah, and they begin carrying some of the people to Babylon as captives. But the interesting thing here, and history bears this out, is that Nebuchadnezzar did not complete this mission, this invasion in 605. Um, He had intended to come down and sort of finish the job, but it's odd, something interrupted him uh, along the way, and history tells us exactly what that is. Nebuchadnezzar's father, a man named Nabopolazar, like, why couldn't they just go with Bill or Tom? (laughs) It's amazing to me, and now we're stuck digging through all this mess. Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolazar was currently the actual king of Babylon. When his son, Nebuchadnezzar, brought the troops south into Judah and was in the process of this invasion, Nebuchadnezzar got word that his father had died. And so history tells us that he immediately left and returned to Babylon. No word that he did this because he was grieving over the death of his father, he did this so that no one else would step in and assume the throne. And so he raced back to Babylon to make sure that he could 
secure the throne. So this invasion of Babylon in 605 would, would actually become the first of three invasions. First one in 605, they took a few people captive. They took some items from God's temple. The second invasion was in 597 BC. Uh, they came down and captured the capital city of Jerusalem. And among those people in that invasion who were taken captive was a man named Ezekiel. And we'll be getting to him fairly soon. And then the third invasion was in 586 BC. That's when they came and completely destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. So over a period of about 19 years, this judgment rolled out through the Babylonians coming against God's people. And now finally we see, after all these years of patience, after all these years of warning, God's word has once again proven to be true. Now, here we are in Jeremiah 25. Nebuchadnezzar has come and begun the invasion of Judah. And since we're trying our best to teach through the Bible chronologically rather than just the order that the books are in, what I want you to do now today is to kind of put a bookmark in Jeremiah 25, and we're going to step out, um, and we're going to look, begin looking at the book of Daniel. Because one of the people who was taken away captive in this first invasion was a young man named Daniel. So if you turn to the right, um, three books from Jeremiah, you'll be in the book of Daniel. I want to read just the first two verses uh, here in Daniel chapter 1 so we can pick up the story here. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Notice, the Lord gave. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, or the temple. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. I don't know if you picked it up in the reading between Jeremiah and here in Daniel, um, an apparent contradiction in the word of God. What in the world are we going to do about this? Because Jeremiah said it was the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Daniel said it was the third year. So let's all have a coronary and a meltdown, and say that this proves that God's word is wrong. Well, let's take a breath, and let's calm down, and let's examine this. I don't want to skip by these kinds of things. Secular historical writings tell us very clearly that the Babylonians used a different type of calculating the years of a king's reign than the Palestinian method that Jeremiah would have used down in Judah. Um, now, Daniel isn't writing this his first couple days in, um, in Babylon as a captive. We see this as you read uh, his, um, his life here spanned the reign of four different kings, well past Nebuchadnezzar, 
a, a span of 70 years, and it's probably likely that Daniel was there even more, uh, longer than 70 years. So he's writing this later now, looking back on this, and he's, he was a teenager when he was taken captive to Babylon. He's literally grown up in Babylon. And so as he's writing this now, years later, he's using the Babylonian rendering of the reign of a king. But Jeremiah is using the Palestinian rendering. Now, here's how this worked. In Babylon, the first year of a king's reign was called the year of ascension. It was a time when the son would co-reign with his father as a period of transition to try to ensure a smooth takeover, a smooth transition to the new kingship. The first year was called the year of, of ascension. The year after that, the Babylonians considered to be the first year of that king's reign. Now, from Jeremiah's standpoint, down in Judah, they considered the first year of a king's reign to be the first year of a king's reign. And then the second and the third, and so on after that. So it's sort of like most countries in the world that have common sense use the metric system. For some reason here in America, we've decided to just dig in our heels and say, no, we want to stick with three thirty seconds of an inch rather than using a simple system that's all divisible by 10. I've never, never understood that in my life. Well, you now, can you, you can... <laughs> you don't like it? <laughs> He's in quite a mood today, isn't he, Jaron? <laughs> now, you can convert between the metric system and the standard system, but you've got to know what you're doing or it's not going to come out right. It's, it's the same thing taking place here. You know, if, if we just take time to, to relax when we hit something like this in Scripture and go back to what should be our foundation through all of our life, that we've already committed to the fact that God's Word is true, whether we understand it or not. There was an old saying years ago, when I was a kid, I remember the first time I heard this, I went, yeah, I don't think that's right. They said, um, uh, God's word, the Bible is God's word, and that settles it, whether I believe it or not. And I went, no, that's not right, actually. It's the other way around. The Bible is God's word, and... It is settled forever, whether we believe it or not. It's not dependent on whether we believe it to be true. It's true. It's just us. We're the slow ones who are trying to catch up to God's word and put the pieces together. So I would encourage you as you go through life, as you read the Bible, as you hit some tough spots, just always pause and remind yourself God's word is true. I'm the one on the short end here. I'm the one who needs to dig deeper and figure this out. If you don't, I'm telling you, your Christian life is going to end up in the weeds. Now, we saw in these verses something that was very common in that day. It says that Nebuchadnezzar took some of the vessels from the temple, from the house of God in Judah, in Jerusalem, and he put them in the house of his God in Babylon. Now, when one pagan nation conquered another one in these days, 
besides taking people captive, besides taking gold and treasure, they would also take some or all of the pagan gods from uh, the, the temple of the people they had just conquered. And they would bring them back and they would put them in their own temple. It was a way of saying, our gods have defeated your gods. It was bragging rights, if you will, kind of a, a trophy case. Um, we saw this way back in 1 Samuel chapter 5, when the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant and took it back and put it into their temple of Dagon. And the next morning they got up and the idol of Dagon had fallen over flat on its face. And like, hmm, that's, that's odd. They put it back up and the next morning they came and had fallen over again. And the Ark of God, just the presence of it had such power that you remember they, you know, diseases started breaking out and they're like, we got to get rid of this thing. And so they, they put it on a cart and, and just sent it back to, to Jerusalem. So this is a very common thing that Nebuchadnezzar did. He's now boasting that his God is greater than the God of Israel. It also tells us he took some people captive, among whom were the brightest and most promising young men of Judah. Now, again, this is a fairly common strategy that you read in history. A nation would go in, they would conquer another city, another nation, and they would find the brightest and the best to take back to their land to put them through an indoctrination system in order to kind of convert them to their side and then use that manpower, so to speak, that brain power, whatever, uh, to their own advantage. Now, <clears throat> this still goes on today. If you've never read anything about Operation Paperclip, uh, you should read that and see the Americans did exactly the same thing after World War II. The Americans brought over hundreds of ex-Nazi scientists, technicians, and engineers and put them to work here, including a man named Werner von Braun, who led NASA for many years. He was an ex-German. So this is still taking place, and that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was doing here. Now, verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now that's the Babylonians. Babylon was the nation, uh, Chaldeans was the culture. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Verse 7, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. 
Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now there are two main ways that captors can try to manipulate their hostages in order to get what they want. They can either put fear into them, you know, tie them up in a basement for months or in a cottage in the woods, threaten them, torture them, threaten their families and so on in order to make that person give them what they want. Or the other way is they can bribe them, they can treat them well, they can promise them all kinds of things, they can promise them their freedom if they will just cooperate and give the person what they want. Now initially when Daniel and the others were brought into captivity, they were not mistreated or threatened at all, far from it. In fact, they had just been brought to Babylon, the largest, most advanced, most beautiful city in the world at that time. And after coming through this incredibly long journey of walking all the way uh, from, from Judah all the way up to Babylon, it must have been quite a sight to walk up to this Ishtar Gate right here. This is a kind of artist rendering from the artifacts that they have found. Uh, many of those pieces of that blue wall are in museums around the world. Imagine walking up to this and thinking, wow, this is captivity. This ain't half bad. Now, this, this city was remarkable. It's like nothing that had ever been seen. The palace alone, if you go to the next picture, this is now, <clears throat> this is a modern-day aerial photograph of the remains of Nebuchadnezzar's palace. That's not Babylon. That's just the palace. It was a glorious sight. I can't imagine it in all of its original beauty. And by the way, the, the sections of the walls that you see there that have been rebuilt, anybody know who did that? Remember a guy named Saddam Hussein or Saddam, as George Bush used to call him? Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was obsessed with Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he claimed to be the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He was so obsessed that uh, he went here to Nebuchadnezzar's palace and began to rebuild. And he was going to take it over for himself. Clearly, he didn't finish. Something interrupted uh, his plans. Um, so I just wanted to show you that just so you can kind of get a picture now of where Daniel is. I think sometimes the only thought we have of Daniel is in the lion's den. And, you know, wow, where was he living? What kind of conditions was this? Listen, I mean, he had just gotten a free ticket to, to the Taj Mahal, to, to Disney World. It, this was an incredible place. And so Daniel and these three others were placed in this hand-picked group who were specifically selected for their superior qualities, their wisdom, their knowledge, their competence, and they were put into an elite training program. And there were three main things that Nebuchadnezzar was attempting to do to these young men. First of all, number one, he tried to change their lifestyle. Their lifestyle. The food and the wine that these young men were given was designed to soften them up, 
It was designed to win their favor and um, to sort of entice them into coming over to the Babylonian way of thinking and to put their faith now in away from the God of Israel into the gods of Babylon. Now, can you imagine how great this food must have looked to these young men? If you've ever had a teenage boy wine because they knew that it had been offered to pagan idols, and in doing so, it would have defiled them. Now, just, just think about being put in this situation. These four teenagers, having been ripped away from their home, their family, their school, their friends, everything they knew, and brought here to Babylon, and they saw this food, they could have said, you know, man, we've, we've just lost everything. I mean, we deserve something nice. After all, we're hungry. They're being polite to us. We don't want to be rude. So let's just let's eat the food. I mean, we know it's been offered to pagan idols, but it's just a little compromise. After all, who's going to see? We're hundreds of miles away from home and the temple and the priest and our parents. No one's going to see. And yet what we find is Daniel and these young men made a remarkable stand in the midst of incredible temptation. You know, I cannot overemphasize the importance of training our appetites so that they will not lead us astray. And I'm talking about much more than just an appetite for food. You know, the the Bible has a lot to say about our desires, our passions, our lusts, our wants. It talks about it all the time and how we need to master them or they're going to master us. You see, in this salvation and sanctification process, when you are saved, there are some things that are going to just fall away from you. You're going to look at them now with disgust and go, how in the world was I ever interested in that? But listen, There are other things that you're you're going to battle for the rest of your life on this earth. I remember talking to Moose Keller's mentor years ago. Imagine how stout this guy was to raise up Moose. Uh, When I spoke to him, he was in his late 70s. And I knew his testimony. He he used to be an alcoholic, the, the type of alcoholic that wakes up in the gutter downtown. And he found Christ, turned his life around, worked hard, started a business, became a multimillionaire. Gene War was his name. You can go to Oklahoma City and the regions there and look around. You'll see War Acres and War Mall and this and that. That's all Gene War. And I said to him, Gene, when you were saved and Christ freed you from so many things in your life and uh, You've told me that he freed you from alcohol, that you've never had another drink since then. I said, but are you ever tempted to drink? You know what he said? Every day of my life. I went, what? Every day of my life. Now, this was a strong man in the faith. And yet that was his Achilles heel. That was his sort of back door that Satan knew If he could get Gene anywhere, he could get him there. And Gene said that desire for that, from a physical, chemical standpoint, never went away. 
even though he detested the thought of it from a spiritual standpoint. He fought that until the day he died. And so you see, you and I were saved. Christ cleanses us from our sin. We are completely pure and righteous in God's eyes because we've been covered with Christ. We will never be judged for our sin. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But listen, here on this earth, in these fleshly bodies, we are going to fight non-stop. We're going to fight our appetites every day, and we are going to have to continually get up in the morning and put them to death again. We need to learn early to train our appetites, to resist what God has said is wrong, and to desire that which is right. These four young men had already committed themselves to a godly lifestyle. I find it astounding. I wish we knew more about their upbringing, their parents, their family. I mean, teenagers, especially teenage boys, so strong in their faith, so grounded in their faith at such a young age, being taken away and dropped into this pagan culture with all these temptations, and yet... Prior to getting to Babylon, they had already made some kind of commitment to keep their appetites suppressed so that it would not lead them into wrongdoing. And so when temptation actually came, it was an easy decision for them. See, the time to do this, the time to take control of your appetites is not when you're facing temptation. If I'm standing at the fridge at midnight with the doors open and I see a piece of chocolate cake on the shelf, it's too late for me then to make a decision to eat right. It's not going to work. My hand is going to reach for it. I'm going to eat the chocolate cake. And yet, if I had been working on that prior, if I had reasons not to eat that at midnight, I could open the fridge and look at it and go, eh, yeah, that's a dumb decision. See here, I put this on the screens so you could see this. Always remember this. It's easy to say no to something when you've already said yes to something better. See, the problem is we go through, I think, most of our Christian life just fighting hard to say no to things, but we never fill the void. We've got to replace those temptations with something better, something of Christ, so that we can be satisfied with him, with what he offers us. And then when that temptation comes along, I'm telling you, if you've already settled that, you'll look at the temptation and just go, you know, my flesh wants that, but it's just crazy. I'm not going to do it. It's sort of like going to your favorite restaurant and being served your favorite meal in the world. And you're there for two hours with family and friends, and oh, you just enjoy this meal. And then they bring you your favorite dessert, and you eat it, and you're like, oh. you push the plate back, you're going, I can't, I can't eat anything else. I mean, I've never done this, but I've heard <laughs> people have. And like, it's just that, you know, one of those rare, wonderful, beautiful moments of complete satisfaction. Imagine then, in that moment, the waiter's coming up to you with another full meal and putting it in front of you and saying, eat it, it's good food. It would almost sicken you, the thought, 
Why? Because you're already satisfied on something good. Nothing else is going to tempt you in that moment. It's remarkable what we see in these young men. I would encourage you, church, as followers of Christ, to begin saying yes to the things of God so that when you're tempted for the other things, it'll be much, much easier to say no. Well, that's not all Nebuchadnezzar did. He, he tried, first of all, to change their lifestyle. Secondly, he tried to change their beliefs. Daniel and the others were put through a re-education system, for, for lack of a better word. It was designed to change their thinking, their loyalty, and draw them away from the God of Israel, the beliefs of Israel, the religious practices of Israel, to the ideology of the Babylonian gods instead. I'm not going to spend much time on this. We'll get into this a little bit later in the book. But how often in the course of any day are we bombarded with false beliefs and pressured to compromise our beliefs, whether it's from co-workers, maybe family members, friends, fellow students, certainly from the media, and more and more from our government. You know, it's amazing. I've, I've heard this more than once now, and I'm sure it's been said uh, tongue-in-cheek, and yet I made a mental note of it, that people in our government have said that anyone who disagrees with the government's viewpoints and narrative should be put into re-education camps. First time I heard that, I went, huh, let's make a note of that. Because see, what they do is they begin, they begin dropping these things here and there, and the public is shocked and outraged. But then after you hear it for a year or two years, it doesn't bother you anymore. Uh, if you want to read some shocking history in this regard, read some of Hitler's own writings and how he manipulated people into just getting right on board with what he believed. It's astonishing. He, you know, it wasn't an overnight thing for him. It took years of re-education and indoctrination. He, took, he, he uh, took control of the newspapers, the radio, the magazines, the schools, on and on and on, all the media. And he began pumping his propaganda about how good his system was going to be. And people just marched right in line with him. Almost no fight at all. And I see the same thing coming slowly for us here. You know, when, when the man in the White House says that people like you and me are the greatest threat to democracy because of our beliefs, it might be time to wake up. Daniel and his friends, though, were already certain of their beliefs. And as I said, we'll get much more into this later. But the point is they were already they already had put down deep roots in their beliefs. They weren't wavering on things like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that stuff my dad told me is true. They were settled on this. And so when the waves came and began to pound them against the rocks, it didn't faze them at all. They were not swayed when pressured with other beliefs. Well, quickly, the last thing here is not only did he try to change their lifestyle and their beliefs, but thirdly, he tried to change their identity. And this is huge. 
These four men had names that honored God. I know names today don't mean that much to people, but they certainly did back then. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. Hananiah meant the Lord is gracious. Mishael meant who is like our God. And Azariah meant the Lord is our helper. But the Babylonians said, you know, hey, we can't have people hearing those names because the God of Israel is literally in their name. Daniel, E-L is the name for God. Mishael. God was right there in their name. And so they said, let's give them new names that point to our gods instead. And so as we read earlier, they changed their names. Daniel became Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Bel was one of their gods. Hanani was, was named Shadrach. It means the command of Aku, another god. Mishael was named Meshach, which means who is like Aku. And Azariah was renamed Abednego, which means the servant of Nego. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's strategy was not haphazard here. In doing all of this, his intent was to completely erase their godly identity, their godly heritage, and replace it by immersing them in the pagan language and literature and culture and religion. And this technique also has been used right up to modern times. We've talked before about uh, Pastor Richard Wombrand. And if you read his books, especially Tortured for Christ, you see that just for being a Christian, just for being a Christian, he was arrested and spent 14 years in a communist concentration camp. His wife, Sabina, spent eight. And he told us that during this time, there were recordings being played where they were kept that looped endlessly 24 hours a day saying, communism is good, Christianity is bad. Communism is good, Christianity is bad. God is dead, renounce your faith 24 hours a day. How in the world could anybody come out of that with a stronger faith than they went in with? And we see this is what Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to do with these young men here. He's trying to change their identity. But we'll see in the weeks to come, he failed at everything with these men. He failed at changing their lifestyle. He failed at changing their beliefs. And even though he did change their names, he failed to change their identity. Despite all the efforts of this pagan nation to corrupt and convert these young men away from God, they were completely unsuccessful. How in the world is that possible? Well, it's possible. The last verse we're going to read in Daniel today is verse 8. It's possible because of this. Daniel 1.8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. So he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Let me quickly summarize the next several verses and how this played out. 
Daniel politely asked if he and the other three could be given only vegetables and water for 10 days. And the guy said, there's no way we're doing that because you've got to look healthy for the king or my head's going to be chopped off. Daniel said, look, give us 10 days, vegetables and water. And he, he wasn't uh, vague about this. He said specifically to this man, we don't want to eat the king's food because it will defile us. It wasn't like, yeah, I've got a meat allergy and probably be better if, you know. No, he was clear, but he was polite. And the guy agreed. He said, we'll try it for 10 days. You know the story. At the end of 10 days, they looked better than everybody else. And so everyone then, (laughs) everyone was switched to vegetables and water. Imagine how unpopular Daniel was (laughs) with the rest of that crew. But even we see, even the king was won over and gave them special favor. And we'll see that more next week. Look, this has just been a very, very brief introduction today, just to kind of give us the the big picture. But here's what I want to close with. You and I, thank the Lord, we are not exiles in Babylon or some other pagan nation. We live here in this free country, freedom pretty much to do what we want. We're not We're not exiles in a foreign land, but we are strangers and foreigners in this evil world. We must never forget this. You know, pardon the cliche, but this world is not our home. We should not get comfortable here. We should not put all our stock here, so to speak. We should not be planning our permanent residence here. And we, as we live in this world, as strangers, as Aliens is the word. Foreigners, weirdos in this world. We need to know what we believe. We need to be able to stand without wavering so that those around us will be drawn to him. I close with this verse from 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this, New Testament now. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. There's that battle we talked about of our appetites. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of his visitation. Peter is saying, you know, just by the way we live in this world, our life, can draw people to salvation. So that on that day, they'll be standing next to us, glorifying God with us, the very people who hated us. Daniel and his friends, they were crystal clear about these three things. And I want to close with this slide. Listen, they were committed to a godly lifestyle. They were certain of their godly beliefs. And they were confident in their godly identity. What about you? Are there any one of these that you've never settled yet as a Christian? Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know what you believe? Have you drawn boundaries in your lifestyle that you're not going to cross for anyone? I pray that uh, as we begin looking at the life of Daniel over the next few weeks, that God would give every one of us the courage 
the conviction, and the desire to stand for him without wavering. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to live as your representatives in this world. There's, There's a reason we're here. There's a reason that you didn't immediately take us to heaven when we were saved. There's work for us to do here. And Lord, help us to know that we are your representatives to others. It's not the pastor's job. It's it's, it's all of us. And so as we move about in our daily lives as foreigners in this world, people who don't, just don't quite fit in, Lord, help us to be winsome. Help us to be thoughtful and gracious and loving to others. That Christ would be put on display in us in beautiful ways. That even those around us would look to us and Wonder what's different and be drawn to Christ through us. Lord, as we begin looking at this life now of Daniel, I pray you would begin building into each of us stronger convictions than we've ever had before to live for you. I pray that when it's all said and done, you would be glorified through each of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.